Good morning, Star Warehouse Church. <clears throat> uh, we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, 1 through uh, chapter 12, verse 14. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, the, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observed the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the, woman of a, uh, in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and if it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun, so if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember the days of darkness, they will be many, and all that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, and the youth let your heart cheer for you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your creators in the days of your youth, before the evil days will come and the years will draw near, which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the light and the sun and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and on the doors the streets are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low, and the ones rise up at the sound of the bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and the desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel is broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying, and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and right he wrote the words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is the weariness of the flesh. In the end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For the whole duty, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, and every secret thing, whether good or evil. The word of God, the people of God. Well, good morning. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's a joy to be with you this morning in the event that you did not hear all of what Andrew just read. We're going to find ourselves in Ecclesiastes. That's the book of the Old Testament, chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 1. I should say we're going to walk through verse 1 all the way through chapter 12, verse 14. While you open or load your Bible, I have a couple of quick updates for you. Uh, the first one is that if you are new, we'd love to connect with you or simply have the opportunity to pray for you. And so let me invite you to fill out one of those connect cards that are on the chairs, leave it in the connect desk, and one of our staff members will get with you within a day or two. In addition to that, uh, we love to preach from God's Word. We love preaching books of the Bible. Uh, therefore, we love to gift God's Word. And so if you do not have a Bible, let us hook you up. That is our gift to you. Or if you know someone that would benefit from having God's Word in their hands, please take one or two or five. Finally, before we get into chapters 11 and 12, today's a big day. I don't know if you knew this, but today is a big day for we as a church celebrate five years. So that is a big deal. <laughs> Praise be to God. Yeah. Uh, so we'll talk more about that. Let me just bring your feelings low as we walk through Ecclesiastes, uh, and then we'll look to the joy that is on the other side. But rest assured, there is joy throughout this time, I think, I hope, probably. Well, let's dig in, yeah? Throughout the years, there have been many books 
written about how several or many individuals have overcome the challenges and obstacles of life to become what they would consider self-made leaders, business owners, even influencers. Ecclesiastes is a book that was written by King Solomon, who next to Jesus was considered to be the wisest man to have ever lived. And this book has not been one of self-made success. Rather, Ecclesiastes addresses the futility and frustration of life in a broken world. This morning, if you hadn't gathered, we close our time in this wonderful book of the Bible by examining chapters 11 and 12. In our 13 weeks of working through Ecclesiastes, God through King Solomon has driven us or taught us at least five principles regarding our heart These are just brief reviews of where we've been. The first is that everything is vanity. The word vanity in Ecclesiastes was the the Hebrew word hevel, if you remember. And that means that something is a mist, it's a vapor, it's temporary. And so Solomon, when he writes that everything is vanity, is saying this life is fleeting, pleasures are fleeting, possessions are fleeting. God through Solomon has taught us that idols are deadly and we are foolish to believe that they can provide us with lasting joy. Ecclesiastes forces us to reckon the reality that apart from God, joy and satisfaction are sold separately. Ecclesiastes has taught us that death is a teacher and death is an evangelist proclaiming, shouting the question, what is it that you are giving your life to? Ecclesiastes has taught us to enjoy the simple gifts of life that God has given you and as a result, pursue contentment. And finally, and this is what we'll cover today, Ecclesiastes has taught us that everything matters because God matters. In chapter 12, we're going to arrive at a topic that is no stranger to us, and that is death once more. In weeks past, we have seen that death is a teacher, death is a reality, and it can be sudden. And today, we see that death is inevitable. And so you may ask, well, why is it that the topic of death continues to come up more and more? Why is it frequently brought up? For starters, death is the great equalizer. Ecclesiastes forces us to examine the depths of our heart, the depravity in our nature, and our dependence or lack thereof on God. And here's your main idea. The inevitability of death teaches us that the fear of God is an invitation of hope for the hopeless and a word of warning of judgment for the proud. Death or the inevitability of death teaches us that the fear of God is an invitation of hope for the hopeless and a word of warning of judgment for the proud. So as we close our series in Ecclesiastes, let us pray, let us consider God, and ask the Holy Spirit to guide us. As we look to our final sermon in this series, let's pray. Almighty God, we praise you and you alone. You are good. You are good even when we can't see it, feel it, or struggle to understand it. You have promised us in Jesus that you will not forsake us. Therefore, may we cling tightly to you and the promise of your mercy and grace. Today, would you give us ears to listen and a heart for wisdom that is centered not on our own understanding, but upon the promises of your word. By faith, may we live and walk wisely as we pursue holiness and flee temptation. 
today reveal to us what we don't know and please give us what we are lacking. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, y'all ready? Well, in our time, we're going to examine these two chapters in kind of a different order. So I hope you have your Bibles ready, uh, and I hope you have, you know, the pages of chapters 11 and 12 ready at hand. So we're going to look at this in a different order. We're going to cover two main sections. That doesn't mean we're looking at two points, but we are going to cover two sections. We're going to cover remember your creator, and then we're going to answer the question, how do we remember our creator? And so to best do this, we're going to begin with the first section, that is, remember your creator, and that is chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. That's where we're starting. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Here, Solomon charges us to, in short, remember our creator. I want to read verse 1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Here's what he is saying. Here's the breakdown of a few of these words, and that will bleed into verses 2 through 8. When Solomon says to remember your creator, he is saying, consider, draw your attention, fix your eyes, know, trust, obey the one who made you, the one who continually gives you gifts to enjoy. And remember your creator in the days of your youth. That word youth doesn't simply apply to those who are young, but anyone who isn't dead. It applies to those who still have vitality and life. That's who the young are. And he uses here where he goes on to say, the days of your youth before evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. He uses creative language. He uses apocalyptic language to say this one thing. So when he's talking about the evil days, it kind of makes you or think about a revelation that the end is near. And he's saying, yes, the end is near. Your end is near. He's using creative, apocalyptic language to say, hey, at one point, your life will be no more. You and I have an expiration date. Therefore, remember your creator. In short, or in summary, because death is inevitable, remember your creator. And in verses 2 through 8, verses 2 through 8 serve as poetic mm, imagery that is meant to draw us in emotionally at the reality of old age. So let's look at that, right? That's what everybody wants to talk about. He uses creative language, poetic imagery to draw us in emotionally. Good old Solomon. He says, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. So he uses nature to convey at some point they're all going to dim, close, stop, and cease. He is referring to nature to connect us to our own life. In other words, at one point... It will all be over. And he continues. We're going to walk through this because it's not as dense as you may think. At least I think so. But nevertheless, verse 3, And the day when the keepers of the house tremble. What he is saying is, hey, at one point, the hands that you have that were uh, there to help you build stuff and create stability, the hands that you have that were able to help you work, all of a sudden are going to start to fail you. They're going to start to shake that the house is your body and eventually you will grow frail. And the strong men are bent. It's a creative way of saying at some point your legs won't be able to support your body. That's why we have wheelchairs and walkers and canes. And so he continues. And the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few. 
What a nice way of saying at some point you're not going to have teeth. <laughs> Continues. The grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed. At some point, your vision is going to go out. My dad has, on my dad's side of the family, uh, my, uh, they have glaucoma. And so over the last several years, my dad's vision has just gotten worse and worse, and it's dimming. And that's how he's described it. He just talks about how the light just gets dimmer and dimmer and dimmer over time. And there's so many things that he's done, so many procedures that he's had, uh, so many eye drops that he's been prescribed that eventually it still continues to cease or it will continue to cease verse 4 and the doors uh, on and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low that not only will your vision start to get less and less you will be able to hear less and less that's not depressing let's keep going One rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. At one point, especially those who maybe you work a lot, maybe you don't work a lot, but you like sleep. You like to sleep in. But then as you get older, man, anything wakes you up. And you're up at 2 a.m., you're up at 3 a.m., and you're just up, right? That's the, those who are awakened by the songbird. You're up really, really early, even if you don't want to be. The, the songs of the soundbird or the songbird means uh, essentially, or the daughters of song, what he is saying is, hey, at one point you were able to sing well, and at one point in life you won't be able to sing as well. Continues. They, he's talking about those who are growing old, they are afraid also of what is high, and the terrors are in the way. The terrors are in the way. The idea here is that as we grow older, right, like if you think, maybe, like I remember my grandparents or, or, or my mom, I remember uh, if my mom tripped and fell, it was a big deal because her body was a lot more frail. As we get older, right, uh, right now, if you're, if you're younger, if you trip, you dust it off or you might even like put some ice on it. But as you get older, the injuries become more severe. Therefore, you're afraid of falling. It's not just that you're afraid of heights. It's that, man, any injury can be severe. Any kind of accident can be uh, detrimental, it continues, the almond tree blossoms. Almonds tree blossom in the spring and they are white. And he is saying at one point you're going to have gray hair. The grasshopper drags itself along, right? You hear the phrase, uh, be patient, grasshopper. Why? Because the grasshopper is springy. It's ready to go. It's on, to, you know what I mean? Like it's young, it's youthful, it's strong. And what he is saying is at one point you won't be able to move as well or as quickly as you used to your mobility will be shot at some point. And desire fails. So desire, everything from everyday things, meals, just not as hungry, motivation ceases, sex drive decreases. Because man is going to his eternal home. At one point, we will all expire. We're going to our eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. At one point, you and I will expire and someone will be carrying us to the ground. Uh, think of, uh, what is it, pallbearers? That's what they're called, right? Individuals who carry the coffin. Continues. Before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern, he goes on to say, what was, what was beautiful at one point, what was life-giving at one point, what was precious is over. When I read that, I don't know, I've been on this like kick. I don't know if you've watched The Irishman. I've been, I've been on this kick, and one of the things I've, I've learned from The Irishman, it, like Robert De Niro comes out, Joe Pesci, Al Pacino, right, like uh, uh, all these other like gangsters. Anyway, one of the things that I always get from these movies is that they always end up old and full of regret. If you've ever watched The Irishman, it ends with them in prison. 
And the only one that survives or that lives is Robert De Niro. And at one point, the FBI is questioning him because of his former life, blah, blah, blah. And as they're questioning him, they're telling him, hey, tell us the truth. Tell us what exactly happened. And they go on to list all of his friends, all of his associates, and they're all dead and gone. Now, granted, that was organized crime. I'm not advocating that. But the idea here is when he writes that the silver cord is broken, hey, what, was, what you thought was worth it, what you thought was beautiful and life-giving and precious, it's over. And he continues, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Hey, this life that you're living is on loan. This life that you are living right now is on loan. And he closes the way he started the book. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. All is vanity. All is fleeting. It's a vapor. It's a breeze. It's a breath. It's fleeting. It's quickly. It goes by fast. And so what's the point of this? What is the point? The point is because death is inevitable, remember your creator. Remember your creator right now, not tomorrow, not after lunch, right now. Grow in godliness right now. Walk in holiness. Pursue righteousness right now. Seek counsel. Fix your eyes upon the Lord Jesus. Surrender your idols and submit your heart to the Lord Jesus right now. Not tomorrow, not in 30 minutes, right now. Remember your creator right now. Remember your creator because he is your creator. The skills that you have, the capacity that you've been given, the gifts that you have, it has all been given to you. Therefore, remember your creator right now. Remember your creator because he remembers you. The skills that you have, the abilities that you have, the gifts that you have been given, the quirkiness in your personality, the compassion that you have, the grace that you exercise, your merciful heart, your kindness, your generosity, that is how he has created you. That was no accident. Remember your creator right now. If you can walk away with anything from chapter 12, it is remember your creator right now. Give yourself up over to him. Surrender idols, submit your hearts, and remember your creator right now. Because death is inevitable, remember your creator. Should we go the way of old age? May we say the same words John Newton said. It's not on the screen, so you get to listen. Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Because death is inevitable, remember your Creator right now. And so next we come to the question, well, how do we remember our creator? How do we remember our creator right now? Solomon provides us with at least three ways to remember our creator, and they are to live wisely and give generously, to rejoice responsibly, and to fear God worshipfully, okay? This is going to take us to chapter 11. We're going to begin with the first one, living wisely and giving generously. This is found in chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, okay? And I'll read verses 1 through 4 because it doesn't always make sense when we first read it. So he writes, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. 
And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will be. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. So beginning with verse 1, here's what he's talking about. It has to deal with trade, where he says, cast your, your bread upon the waters. The context uh, of Solomon's day is he is saying, hey, when it comes to receiving a profit, making gain, right? When it comes to working hard and making money, it's going to require courage, commitment, and a little bit of risk. And so in his day, uh, when it came to the sea trade, there was a lot of money to be made in that. But one of the ways in which they would do that is they would send three, four, five, six, seven ships out to go trade because not all of them would come back. And so he's saying, if I only sent one of them, if I only put all my eggs in one ship's basket, there's a high probability that it won't return and I'm out profit. But if I send three, four, five, six, seven ships and four of them return, five of them return, the profit is substantial. And so that's the context of cast your bread onto the waters. The principle for you and I is that we ought to work hard, diligently, smart, and take some risks. That would be the principle. We ought to work hard, diligently. We ought to be committed to what we say we're going to do. We're going to make some risks. We're going to make some wise investments because working hard, working smart has a pretty significant return. That's verse one. Verse two, he says, give a portion to seven or to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. What he is saying is, hey, after you've made that profit, after you have gained in our context, after you've been working, after you have that savings, after you have that nice chunk of change, what you should be doing is diversifying your earnings. And one of the way in which we diversify our earnings is by giving generously. So when he writes, <clears throat> give a portion to seven, seven is the Bible's perfect number, right? You can look at it in the context of just enough or giving in the context of the local church. He is saying, hey, give what you need and then give to eight. In other words, give abundantly, give more than what you think you ought to give. Bless others. Living wisely means living for the purpose of blessing and benefiting others, That's verse two. And he, and he proves this with verse three. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on earth. He's saying, why would you hoard your money? The clouds don't hoard their rain. If a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. The tree doesn't hoard life. So why do you hoard your earnings? Living wisely involves seeking the benefit and blessing of others. Why? Because you never know what's going to happen. You never know what's going to happen. And so work diligently, work hard, but work with loose hands. Not entitled ones, but loose hands. Solomon is saying, you don't know what you don't know, <laughs> and that's okay. Verse four, he who observes the wind will not sow, he who regards the clouds will not reap. The one who is so consumed with I need to know oftentimes is consumed with I need to know and actually doesn't do anything. Observing and regarding, here, here's what he's saying. This is the individual who's always looking for the, quote, right time to do something, but actually never does it, right? The, the person who is regarding the weather or, or, or who is regarding the clouds will not reap. He's saying, this is the person who's always checking the weather channel, but doesn't get off of the sofa and doesn't actually harvest, doesn't actually go and plant 
the, the crops. And so in, in a nutshell, here's what Solomon is saying. Hey, work diligently, work hard, bless others by giving generously. Don't worry about, don't worry so much about what you don't know. And as a result, stop procrastinating. Stop using ignorance as an excuse. Well, I just didn't know. No, you do know. Remember your creator by working hard, living wisely, and giving generously. And you might still say, yeah, but I just want to know because I need to know. And Solomon says, you won't. You're not going to know everything. Verse 5, as you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. He uses this example by saying, hey, uh, you're limited, but God isn't. And just because you're limited, don't hold back. You don't know what's going to happen. You might prosper, you might not, but you don't know that. One writer says it this way, let God take care of his mysteries and let us take care of our work. What we should learn from these verses is that just because we are limited doesn't mean we should be led to laziness or despair. Rather, we should be led to work diligently and give generously that is wise living. That's what Solomon is saying. That is wise living. Number two, rejoice responsibly. This is verses seven through 10. This is a great one. I want to focus on two things in this section. I want to focus on following your heart, which I know is some of y'all's mantra, following your heart and rejoice in your youth. But let's look at two bookends first. This is verse seven, and then this is verse 10. Verse seven, light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. You know what's awesome? Vitamin D. You know why it's awesome? Because you get to be outside. That's essentially what he's saying. Hey man, if there's light, you should be enjoying life. Light is sweet, all right? In the valley, we know all about the sun, okay? And like, if we're honest, yeah, I get it. It's hot, but that doesn't keep you from going out a lot of the time. As much as you say it's so hot, most of you still find yourselves outside, right? That's a blessing. Therefore, verse 10, remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body <clears throat> for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. He's saying, hey, because life is a vapor, because it's a breeze, because it's a breath, remove vexation. That is, remove sorrow, remove unhappiness. Your, your total self, all of you, should rejoice. And it sounds like a self-help thing, right? Just stop being unhappy, stop being sorrowful, and just be happy. But you might add, well, okay, fine. Well, how do we do that? Well, Solomon gives us two ways to do that. He tells us, this is what's interesting, he tells us to follow your heart and to rejoice in your youth. So sandwiched between removing vexation and sunny D are these two things. Follow your heart, rejoice in your youth. Verse eight, so if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let them remember the days that the days of darkness will be many, all that comes is vanity, right? Verse nine, rejoice, O young man, in your youth and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Oh man, some of you are like, see, I knew it. Follow your heart, it's in the Bible. Well, let's talk about what follow your heart means today. Remember, Ecclesiastes forces us to be honest. So not the agas. Not the agas, like you don't know. Oh, I really don't know what it means. We just talked about not using ignorance as an excuse. So what does it mean today? In reality, in reality, when we use the phrase, hey, follow your heart, it really means just think about yourself. Think about yourself. Think about your agenda. Think about your consumption. Think about what you're going to gain from it. That's part of what it means. Additionally, it can mean, hey, follow your heart means living in the moment. Living in the moment often involves not thinking about consequences. It involves oftentimes embracing immediate pleasures without considering long-term 
effects. So that's what it really means, today at least. We're going to come back to that. The next thing he says is to rejoice. He says it at least twice. Rejoice in your youth. He provides us with encouragements. Hey, enjoy the life that you've been given. This is the toil. This is, this is the lot that you have been given. But he always adds a sober reminder. So he says, hey, rejoice in the days of your youth. If you are alive, then there is hope. And because there is hope, you should live. But remember, darkness will come. You will experience hardship. Suffering, loss, confusion, and the frustration that life is filled with paradoxes. So he doesn't get us off the hook. And so when we consider these two things, we might ask, well, what's the point of following your heart and rejoicing in our youth? Let's go back. This is verse uh, 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Here it is. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. What does it mean to follow your heart biblically? Let me add that. What does it mean to do that? What does it mean to rejoice in the day of your youth? In a nutshell, pursue holiness. Pursue holiness. He gives you the qualifier. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. What does follow your heart mean? It means to pursue holiness. What does it mean to rejoice in your youth? To pursue holiness because of the gifts God has given you to enjoy. Why does that qualifier matter? Because every time we do what we think is good for us, we will have to answer to God with what we've done. Solomon isn't trying to, to suck the joy out of life. But as we've seen in Ecclesiastes, if God is the one who gives us the ability to have joy, then real Genuine, authentic joy comes from a heart that is first surrendered to God. Why? Because joy and satisfaction apart from God is sold separately. Everything we do matters. Rejoice responsibly by savoring the gifts of God honorably and pursue Holiness. Paul tells Timothy something really similar. He says, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. That is a heart that has been renewed. That is a heart that has been redeemed. Pursue righteousness. Flee temptation. You want to follow your heart? Pursue holiness. You want to rejoice in the days of your youth? Enjoy the gifts God is giving you to enjoy. Pursue holiness. Number three, and we'll spend most of our time here, fear God worshipfully. Remember the question, how do we remember our Creator? We talked about living wisely and giving generously, rejoicing responsibly, and now fearing God Worshipfully. This is chapter 12. So now we're going back to chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. And this is where we will spend the majority of our time. Verse 9 Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Verses 9 through 14 is Solomon changing the tone once more, and now basically giving us the summary of what he's just written. It's kind of like when you buy a new book, or when you buy a book in general, and you look at the back cover, and it gives you like the summary of what the book is about and what the author has said. That's kind of what Solomon is doing here. And so what Solomon is ultimately providing us with is his final conclusions. And so beginning with verse 9, he's ultimately telling us that Ecclesiastes, or this collection of writings, has been a book that has had a hard and honest word for us to look at and to consider, but still a book of wisdom. 
everything that we've covered in the last 13 weeks, Solomon arranged intentionally, wrote creatively, styled artistically, and organized the entire book. It is a book of wisdom. God used Solomon to write this book so that we would take a good and honest view of life under the sun, pose questions that we don't have answers to, and ultimately point us to the one who does, and that is Jesus Christ. This book is part, you've got to remember this, this book is part of the Word of God. It has been breathed out by God. Solomon goes on to say in verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. That shepherd isn't Solomon, that shepherd is God. These words have been breathed out by God as it was written through Solomon and the wisdom contained in Ecclesiastes has been like a goad or like fixed nails. Do you know what a, a goad is? A goad is kind of like a, a rod that, 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 that prods, that shepherds would use that would prod the sheep to go a certain direction. And the purpose of the goad was for correction and protection. It was to correct the way in which they were going or if there was danger near it was to prod them to get them away from danger as quickly as possible the words in this book push us to expect lasting satisfaction joy and contentment in the goodness of God and not our possessions our pleasures or our fleeting pursuit God uses Ecclesiastes as a prod to push us into spiritual action Solomon says that this book is like fixed nails. When you take a, like a two by four, or you take a board and you're making a fence and you nail it to the rest of the fence, what it does is that it creates uh, security and stability. Because this is the wisdom of God poured out through Solomon, it provides, with, it provides us with stability and security that we're gonna walk in the way of wisdom. And in verse 12, he gives a, a personal uh, touch to it. My son, beware of any, anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. Information is always going to be overloaded, right? In his days, there were massive libraries. In our days, it's digital content, digital information that's constantly being produced. And ultimately, what are you saying? There, there's always going to be information for you to want to digest. And it's not that it's bad, but there's always going to be more. There's always going to be another question. There's always going to be something else that you want to be on the quest for. That's always going to be coming. That's not the point. What is true is that as that keeps coming and as you want to pursue that, you're going to get worn out. You're going to have information overload. You're going to have decision fatigue. You won't even be able to have a real conversation with so much information coming your way. You're going to be worn out. And Solomon is saying, this is what wisdom is. It's not that you need to study more because you don't know enough. It's that you need to obey what has already been revealed to you. And if we're honest, that tends to be a lot of us. I need to study more because I don't know and I want to know and I hate not knowing and I got to know the things. And Solomon is saying, actually, a lot has been revealed to you. The question is, has you even obeyed that? And so there's that personal connection. It's an invitation to surrender our idols and remember our creator. And so we get to verses 13 and 14, right? I love the way he ends. He says, the end of the matter. He's like, this is it. I've given you just my last thoughts. Here's my final conclusion. Here's what I land on. This is what I've learned. This is what I want you to walk away with in light of all my experiences, in light of all of the things I've witnessed and observed, in light of all of my creative writings, studies, and efforts. This is it. This is what I came down to. Here is my conclusion. Here is my thesis for this giant journal. And here's what he says. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That's his final conclusion. Fear God. 
That is, knowing that God is who he says he is, and you are not him. And as a result of that, that truth liberates us. You see, a fear of God isn't only fear. It also includes a genuine love for him. It also includes contentment. It includes joy. It includes grace. It includes redemption. When we fear God, that is when we know God, when we are in a relationship with God, sin loses its sweetness and its strength. And then he says, keep his commandments. Obedience follows the fear of the Lord. Obedience is a delight to the one who knows God and is known by God. That doesn't mean it's always easy. The end of the matter is that we were created to be in relationship with God, our Creator. A relationship where He is our King and we delightfully obey and fully depend on Him. Verse 14, he concludes, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Verse 14 is the final invitation. It is an invitation concerning the fear of God. And that is that the fear of God is an invitation of hope, for the hopeless, and a word of warning of judgment for the proud. In short, verse 14, Solomon is saying, everything matters because God matters. So how do we remember our Creator? By living wisely and giving generously, rejoicing responsibly, and fearing Him worshipfully. And so as we wrap up our time Ecclesiastes has been a hard word for an honest look at life under the sun and life within our sinful hearts. But Ecclesiastes is not the final word. In fact, it's a beautiful word that carries us to our Savior's work and words. You see, Jesus entered into the vanity and vexation of this world. Let me say it this way. He entered into the vanity and vexation of our world. He walked through the crooked streets of both the beauty and the broken. He suffered our world's futility and frustration, and it didn't, and he didn't end there. The judgment that we deserve, that Solomon writes about, Jesus took it upon himself in our place for our sin on a rugged cross, the righteous dying for the unrighteous. And as Solomon concludes with a word of warning and a word of hope, Jesus' final words were, it is finished. That is, the work by which we are reconciled to God has been satisfied and completed through the sacrificial and substitutionary death of Jesus for us. He was buried, and then on the third day, he rose again, bringing him out of the grave. And in Jesus, there is forgiveness and redemption and transformation and grace and mercy. In him, there is hope. And while we may not have all of the answers, we know the one who does. May our minds be curious, but our hearts content in the words work and promises of the Lord Jesus Christ. One day he will return to claim his bride, the church, and by faith we will stand before our righteous judge by falling into the arms of our friend, our redeemer, our savior, Jesus. It is the victory of Jesus over sin, death, and hell that saves us from the vanity of sin. Today, let us turn to Jesus. Ecclesiastes points us to Jesus. So Christian, in our study, have you been goaded toward repentance? That is the Holy Spirit beckoning you. He is beckoning you to draw near. Have you followed your own heart for your own gain? That's the Holy Spirit exposing your heart 
as he draws near to you? Have you walked arrogantly and unlovingly? That's the Holy Spirit convicting you. Have you experienced suffering and heartache? That's the Holy Spirit drawing near to comfort you by grace. Today, let me invite you to repent. Turn to the Lord Jesus by His grace, both for comfort and transformation. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, thank you so much for hanging out with us this morning. I got to tell you, because I love you, apart from Jesus, you will be judged before God, not as a good person, but as an enemy. However, the Lord Jesus offers the grace of salvation that you cannot earn, one that you cannot work for, but one that you simply surrender to so that you might be reconciled to God through Jesus. You too, I invite you to repent of your sin, to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus, and you will stand before God as the redeemed. Church, the reality or the inevitability of death teaches us that the fear of God is an invitation of hope for the hopeless and a word of warning of judgment for the proud. Let's pray. Almighty God, You are sovereign. You alone are sovereign. You alone are good. You alone quench the thirst of our souls with Your grace. Therefore, Lord, we confess that we struggle in not knowing. If we're honest, our souls hurt, our hearts ache, and our doubt shakes us. And the pain we feel is very real. Your Word promises us that Jesus sympathizes with us. His capacity is one of sympathy. His role is one of a gentle and lowly heart for us. His promise is that those who are burdened will be given rest by Him. And so may the cry of our heart and the source of our hope today, would that be Jesus. We thank You for the comfort, for the challenges, and the convictions found in Ecclesiastes. If, it, if they have carried us back to You, then we are thankful further, please forgive us where we have rejected you. Forgive us where we have rejected our brothers and sisters. Forgive us where we have ignored the Spirit's leading in our life. We also ask, Lord, that you would bring about comfort, not so that we would have all the answers, but simply comfort by your grace. Strengthen us today with your grace. Strengthen us by the grace that is the Lord Jesus, for it is only because of Jesus that we can face today. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be pleasing to you this morning. Amen.